Hey folks, my name is Andy Sitto. I'm a singer, songwriter, producer, composer, and podcaster now living in Nashville, Tennessee. My guest this week is Nashville-based artist and songwriter Katie Boak. It's spelled B-O-E-C-K. It's pronounced Boke. I double-checked, and I take, I take pride in pronouncing people's names correctly, maybe because my name is Sido, S-Y-D-O-W, um, and it's, it gets pronounced Sido and Sidow and Sidow and Snyder and all kinds of different things. So I try not to mess that up, and, and I, you know, I'll, I'll look up interviews with guests beforehand to see if I can hear someone pronounce their name or hear themselves pronounce their name. And I heard Boic, so I thought it was Boic, and, and uh, I'm glad I double-checked. And we just got into this conversation before the podcast about changing your name. And uh, it, it's just an interesting thing to—it's it, just an interesting thing to think about. Does a weird last name affect your artist career in any way? Does it matter? Um, when people know it, they know it. Katie said, um, but also that she had considered changing her name. Um, I've had those thoughts in the past. It's just an interesting conversation. I don't know where I'm going with it, but it was just uh, something we chatted about. Um, but anyway, we had a wonderful conversation, uh, and Katie has has done a lot. Um, grew up in California, went to UCLA for theater, um, started playing in dive bars and coffee houses in the Laurel Canyon area, which is uh, just has a very rich musical culture. Um, and then went on a tour in India with an all-woman band, ended up back in California for a little while to record an EP, and then uh, ended up doing a play called Spring Awakening. You might have heard of it. It's, it's a popular uh, it's a popular musical, excuse me. And the music is written by Duncan Sheik, who has who's had a you know a commercial music career as well. Um, and the play, or the excuse me, the musical ended up taking Katie to Broadway, where it was performed. This is the second consecutive episode interviewing someone who acted in a Broadway play. I think that's that's crazy. Um, and Katie had the lead role in that. Um, after that, ended up in Kentucky for a brief period, and then in Nashville, where she's at now. Uh, she spent some time over the last uh, couple years touring. Uh, Joni Mitchell's Blue. She does all the old, uh, all the open tunings, the dulcimer parts, the piano parts, and plays the whole album at performing arts centers around the country. And then she just put out um, a new album of original songs called Calico, and that came out on April 28th of 2023. We talk about all that and more, and I want to jump into it in just a moment. Um, it's been a busy week. It's been a busy month here. I played the Yellowstone Songwriter Festival in Cody, Wyoming, uh, at the beginning of September, and then the Whitefish Songwriter Fest uh, in Whitefish, Montana, the next week. And now I am um, in Austin, Texas, for the Southwest Regional Folk Alliance. Headed back home on the first. I'm excited to get back home. It's been a long time out on the road. Before we jump in, quick thanks to our sponsor, uh, Narrator Music. For simple and affordable licensing for sync, visit narratormusic.com. 
www.thepodcastmarketingmusicalmarketingmusicalmarketingmusicalmarketingmusicalmarketingmusicalmarketingmusicalmarketingmusicalmarketingmusicalmarketingmusicalmarketingmusicalmarketingmusicalmarketingm
yeah, it's so nice to be like, oh, you don't feel like doing this right now? Cool. Let's go like take the dog for a walk and come back and like see how we do then. Like it's really nice to have um, the ability to like adapt the rhythms and stuff like that. So, yeah. 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 So where did you grow up? So I was born on the central coast of California and um, my parents divorced when I was young. And so I spent time mostly there during the school year, like um, north of Santa Barbara in a little kind of area called the central coast. Um, and then I spent summers in Northern California with my dad before he moved back to Montana, which is where I spent a lot of time uh, which is where he's from. So I kind of got a little bit of the best of both worlds, but primarily on the central coast of California. Yeah. And did you go to uh, did you go to a public school? I did. I was like latchkey kid, like public school, like went to the daycare before the daycare and the aftercare. Like my parents yeah. were like, you know, really hard workers and um, got up super early. And um, yeah, so I was like public school kid all the way. So this is like very new for me to like kind of step out of that and you know do do this homeschool thing um but yeah i had i had a great experience in school yeah and i should have asked before before this or confirmed you're in nashville now correct i live in nashville now yeah okay. i've like bounced around in kind of the trifecta of major entertainment cities la new york um and back and forth between there for a little while and then landed in nashville uh, about 5 years ago great Great. Well, I, yeah, I was I was reading, uh, you know, your bio on your website, and you've been all over the place and traveled to other countries and done done all kinds of cool stuff. But so coming up in California, um, did you start in on music early, or um, did did acting come first? Um, I think probably I started taking voice lessons when I was really little. So my dad was a songwriter, um, you know, and always had his guitar and his his notebook and so I was always watching that um and then when my parents divorced my mom married somebody who was like a hobby musician and we would have song circles and sing like old folk songs so I always loved music but I had been involved in like local community theater as a kid and it kind of all happened simultaneously like I I stayed doing theater productions through elementary school middle school high school but it wasn't until like 15 when I really started like sitting with the guitar and realizing that I could like formulate chords and make songs and like put me you know music to it and I started writing and kind of focusing on that in high school but then I did study theater in college um but it's always kind of been a little bit of both like um now I'm like almost primarily like only focused on music and I'm not doing a ton of theater or anything but um yeah, I think it was just singing was the basis. Like, I just loved to sing first and foremost. And so um, that's always been my primary, I guess, form of expression. And then when college came around, you you did go, you know, all in with the theater somewhat, right, at UCLA? Yeah, it's funny. Like, I, I did. I studied musical theater at UCLA, and that was, like, a big thing. But even there, like, there was this on-campus, um, like, kind of well-known um like sort of uh like singing competition where it was original music and you could submit and um it was called spring sing and like sarah borellas had done it and like maroon five did it when they were there like 
and they hold it in Polly Pavilion, which is like the huge, you know, basketball stadium. Yeah. And, you know, it's like 12,000 people. It was like a huge audience for, you know, a 20, 20 year old. Um, and so I submitted my original songs and I was doing that kind of the whole time um, while being there. So, yeah. Were you a good student? Annoyingly so, yeah. Like, it's actually been, like, an interesting journey for me doing this unschooling thing with my son because I think part of what I did learn in public school was, like, how to be very, like, studious, like, internalize information, regurgitate it, even if it meant, like, just only holding that information in my brain for, like, long enough to pass the test. Like, I feel like I kind of gamed the system from the inside. Like, I figured yeah. out how the test questions worked. And I became very like high achieving in that in that way at the expense, I think, sometimes of like my comprehension and my interest in like, you know, just the overall holistic understanding of the subject. Um, so, yeah, I was like really into grades. I hated missing school, like if I was yeah. sick and like I didn't get like perfect attendance or something like that. And that's been something that I've like realized, like I'm like, I don't know how well that served me like in the real world, like. Because yeah. it is a different, it is a different thing. And like you get out of college and you're like, whoa, like I have I'm lacking in all these other skills that are like maybe a little bit more street smart skills or just like how to really sit back and enjoy a book and just be leisurely without thinking about the barometer of success or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I relate to that. I relate to that. I, I knew what I had to do to get and I, you know, I wasn't a 4.0 student, but I, I knew what I had to do to to get the grade. Yeah, whether I was exactly. learning it or not. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what I'm interested in here with like the homeschool thing is like maybe there's another way to go about like fostering interest and um, you know I want him to be proficient obviously and I want him to I don't want to feel like he's like missing stuff and but it's been an interesting exercise in like oh like I don't have to like move at this like pace that is like standardized like what does it mean to just open up the day to like what interests us and to like just yeah like this whole thing with new rhythms is is like something I'm really exploring as a mother and it's it's hard for me to detach myself from like my perfectionism that I that I like feel like it became a staple of my personality it became a staple of my creativity and like I feel like I've sort of hit a wall with it like like, and it doesn't really matter. Like, actually, perfectionism has only gotten me so far. And I think it served me well. But, like, now I'm just so much more interested in the humanity of, like, existence and, like, what it means to just be flawed and, and like, how that is going to serve me creatively. And, like, I'm so curious to see what kind of kid it produces in my son when I'm not, like, sitting here, like you know, forcing perfectionism on him and just more curiosity and like the yeah. ongoing process of like knowledge attainment. What do you think are, you, you know, if, if you could nail down a positive and a negative of being a perfectionist in music, what mm -hmm. is that for you? Yeah. I mean, I think having standards is really good. Like for me, a song isn't done unless it really feels done. Like I have a hard time co-writing because sometimes people just like throw out lyrics and I'm like I don't know that that means anything like that's not serving the song and I but then on the opposite side it's like I'll get stuck and I won't finish something for a while because 
So I'm trying to strike the balance between like, just put a lyric in, let's just get it finished. Let's see like, so that the flow can continue. But I think there's something to be said about editing, which is something I haven't notoriously done either because it was sort of my process to like, get it right and like hammer it to the point that like, this second verse like has to be as strong or whatever. And like, if I don't get it, the song's not ever going to be done and I'll never perform it because to me, if it's not like, if it's not like, if the words don't feel like a complete, um, yeah, like vehicle for what the full song is trying to say, like, I just don't, I would never sing a song where I, I feel half-assed about what I'm saying. So in that sense, I think it's good because it really like pushes you to like find exactly what it is you're saying and not just like fill in the blanks for the sake of the song or whatever. Yeah. But it can also be challenging because, you know, something done, they say done is better than good. And and I do believe that. I feel like, you know, a lot of half written songs, like you can't really do much with that, you know, so. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also tough to justify lyrics later after the song's out if they were meaningless. <laughs> yeah. And I think more and more now, especially as I'm like finding my place in the like folk world, it's like the words really are everything. And I feel like I've I've been able to skate along with just like the quality of my voice and like letting my melodies and like the way that I utilize my voice as an instrument kind of carry the bulk of the weight of a song and i'm really trying to like dig in now as a middle-aged woman like not middle-aged but like reaching my mid-30s like i really care about what i'm saying and and i think the folk world it's like it's what i love about it is like you can be kind of like the singing is secondary to like what it is that you're that you're imparting um lyrically so and would you say that you would call yourself a, a folk artist like it's so tough to put genres on stuff and I don't want to start, but I mean, would, is that, is that where the lane you would put yourself in, in, in an elevator? I think so. Yeah. I mean, I come from that school of like Joni and like the Laurel Canyon, like, and Kingston trio. And like, just, those were the people that my folks were playing growing up, Janicean and, and even someone like Emmylou Harris, like, who's a little bit, I guess you could say more country folk, but like, yeah, I feel the most at home and coming to Kerrville, like that was such a cool feeling for me because I remember having a bit of a revelation like, oh, yeah, I have all these stories and I've traveled around and this is folk singing like this. That's what it is. And um, yeah, I think that I I feel limited by Americana, even though I have a like deep roots in country music and my dad, that was kind of his background. Um, But I'm also like. I like R&B and I like Neo Soul, um, but I think at its core, like what I do and what I want to continue doing more of is like, is I think best defined inside of the term folk. Yeah. 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 And you were mentioning Laurel Canyon, you know, after you got out of college, you were in that whole scene, right? Playing coffee houses and dive bars. And, and I don't know. It's hard to name a place that's more rich with, I don't know, with, with like folk music. I mean, you've got Carol King's Tapestry. You've got uh, Joni, of course, uh, Ladies of the Can. You've got Crosby, Stills, Nash. Yeah, Tom, Tom Petty, Beach Boys, Buffalo Springfield. Right. It, it goes yeah. on and on. 
that West Coast folk thing, I think that's just something the more that I become like acquainted with like all of the different regional styles, like I, I sometimes people will use that term like West Coast folk. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I do like I'm from California. Like it just comes out naturally like that kind of I, I always think about like Ventura Highway, America, like that kind of vibe. Um, it's a little carefree. It's a little it's fun. It's playful. It's, um, yeah, it's got a, like an air of freshness about it. Um, yeah. So I, I did move into Laurel Canyon. I found like an ad on Craigslist and I moved into this kind of crazy old rundown house with a bunch of other kind of like artistic women. And I lived in Laurel Canyon for a few years and, um, kind of soaked up that, that whole vibe and that scene and the LA like music scene at the time was cool. It was like, a lot of the musicians that I was playing with back then are now like, you know, main guys and bigger bands like for Casey Musgraves and stuff. And it's cool. Like, uh, I don't think I realized like how lucky I was with the musicians I was collaborating with at the time because we were all just pretty young. But um, L.A.'s got a great scene and I miss it. I don't miss the city and I don't miss the lifestyle, but the musicians and the creativity and the community there is really great. And when I do get back, I'm always, I'm always so grateful for those years. They were kind of tough. Like it was tough to cut my teeth in a city like LA. Um, and looking back, I'm like, man, those years were like really fraught with insecurity and just confusion. But, um, but in retrospect, like there was a lot of great music happening and like the hotel cafe singer songwriter scene was really strong and thriving back then. Yeah. Do do you think it still is? I think so. Yeah. I mean, so much has changed like with the musical landscape now with like social media and like TikTok and content creation that it's like I it's hard to get a sense of like what the scene is anymore because so much of it now is just about like getting on you know, getting together and making videos, like short form videos that like I don't really have a sense of like what it's what's going on there now and it's a lot of pop and it's kind of why i came to nashville because i wanted to focus on record making and i wanted to focus on like the craft of songwriting and i felt like in la and new york there was a lot of emphasis on like vocal performance and production and kind of image and i was just like really interested in like writing better songs so um i feel like nashville is a city where you can like Kind of like I was mentioning with folk, like you don't have to be the best singer, but like if what you're saying is really great, like the song is really valued here. Whereas like LA, I feel like you can kind of like get get by with a little bit more sheen and shine and production and vocal chops. And it's like, ooh, that's yeah. really valued. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I guess that that sums it up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and it doesn't I don't think it's better or worse. It's just like, what are you interested in as a like as an artist and like what are your strengths? And I, I guess I felt like I knew that my songwriting, like I just needed to work on that and not rest on the laurels of like a voice that sounds really great on record. Yeah, 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 absolutely. In after your time in Laurel Canyon, or at least during that time, you went and toured India with an all woman group. Is that right? Yeah, super weird experience, but one that. I, was really inspiring and I'm grateful for it. Like, so I started going to open mics and there was one out in Marina Del Rey called, um, I think it might've been called Revival. 
And it was like kind of, I didn't know this at the time, but it was like all of the Burning Man people in, in LA, like, and I was totally clueless about what that scene was, but it was like a lot of people who like, you know, make the yearly pilgrimage to Burning Man. And so they're like very like, you know, Venice beach, Marina del Rey people. And I just showed up cause someone had mentioned like, you should go do this thing. And it was there that I met um, someone who was putting together this group. Um, and it was a great, great gig. It was like, you get a six month visa. There's three months of gigs, 18 shows guaranteed, 500 bucks a show. Do you want to go to India? And I was like, yeah. And I had actually <laughs> just got my passport. Like I had on a whim, like I'd never traveled out of like, I'd been to Canada and Mexico, like maybe once, but I'd never had to get a passport. And I was, you know, freshly graduated. I think I was like 21, 22. I was like, I want to travel. And so I got my passport and like within a month it was put to use. And I was, we rehearsed me and four other women who had never met. And it actually, there was this woman, Leah Zeger, who's an incredible violinist. She like plays violin for Hans Zimmer now. And like, she's amazing. Wow. She was in the group. Um, and then a couple other women. Um, and, uh, yeah, we like toured India and played like Indian weddings and we played like events for like Ferrari and we played like um, for the Indian Navy ball. Like we had pretty good gigs and, you know, India, it's it's a wild place, but they are just as like entertainment based as L.A. I mean, they call it Bollywood for a reason. So it's like there was a lot of opportunities for us and, um, you know, it was corporate event work, but um but we got to travel and see basically the entire country and it was, it was beautiful. Yeah. What came of that experience? I mean, was there something that happened out of that that led you somewhere else? Yeah. So I met like, I met a bunch of Spanish expatriates and I befriended them and had like a little romance with one of them. And basically that was like what inspired the first EP that I made called speaking of you. So I came back from that. Um, I mean, I came back a better musician for sure. And I had experience like what I learned in India was like, I mean, cause it was gnarly, you know, you, you drink a speck of water, like accidentally, you know, or you eat like you eat a piece of raw lettuce without thinking. And then you're like doubled over with like, you know, like severe, um, giardia or whatever like you get you you get sick in india at a certain point like if you're if you're not if you don't have like the microbes already in your system and it's like having to perform when you're like pretty much like on your you know like i, I had a couple gigs where i was like doing the gig and like running off stage and like barfing and coming back up and like oh my gosh you, know, you just like i became like very road warrior-esque and like for whatever reason the company would always book us the first flight out the next morning so we'd do a gig and then our, our lobby call sorry our lobby call would be like i don't know how to turn that off how, is there oh, a way I, to do i can't even hear you it you can't hear it okay no, good i'm no. getting like texts <laughs> good as long as you can't hear yeah our lobby call would be like 4 a.m and it's like we'd be exhausted and we had all this gear that we were lugging around and like oh my gosh we just got really good at doing the road thing which i had never done like i'd never really toured that like that and um and just getting on stage and sometimes the audiences were really warm and sometimes they were really hard to please because it's like elite indian bollywood audiences and it's like we were just these like american women singing Katy Perry songs like it wasn't you know like sometimes we had a very cold response and so mm -hmm. it's just like learning how to like 
not get too attached to like someone's praise of you, not get too attached to people's criticisms of you. And just like, you just get up there and you do your, your best. And, um, and just like learning about professionalism in that sense. And then of course, you know, all the experiences were inspiring and, um, you know, it's such a country like with so much sensory, like stimulation, just smells, tastes, colors, people, poverty, extreme wealth. Um, and that all definitely like fueled my writing coming back to America and like trying to process the experience and stuff like that. So, yeah. Yes. It, and then speaking of you, was that back, not speaking of you, but the EP speaking of you, was that back in LA at that point? Yeah. So I came back and I kind of reconvened with my band and finished the songs and did like a little Kickstarter for like 5,000 and went into a studio and like live tracked that with my band at the time. And that was sort of my first experiment, you know, experience. Like I had made one record before, like as a teenager um, with like an LA producer and that was fun. But um, this was the first time that I really kind of took the reins and like kind of self-produced and, tried to capture the sound that I was going for, which, you know, you know how it is. It's like you have the sound in your mind and then you the like the journey from getting what's in your head on record. Like there's always a space between there. But I was, you know, I was happy with and I'm still proud of that. I feel like there's some great songs on there and great performance takes. Um, And it was a learning process. I mean, every record I've made now, it's like. I just have learned so much about what to do, what not to do and getting closer and closer to like being able to actualize the vision, you know? Yeah. 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 And so did you take this on the road? No, you know, I didn't have my like act together that well. Like I didn't like, I didn't shop it. Like, I don't know. It came out in 2014. Like I was very naive about like how to go about, making the most of a release process and still am. I mean, the, the one I just made, I feel like I went through a whole process of doing it the way I thought I should do it. And there's so many things I would do differently now and I wouldn't spend as much money. And so, no, I mean, I didn't, I didn't tour it in the sense that I had like, you know, regular gigs and I was selling the record, but I, I did informally, like I, I've, you know, I've got my little pockets of places where, um, I have like more concentrated audience, you know, fans and stuff. And so like I went up to Montana and did several like shows up there and I, I've been going to Milo Music Fest for several years. And so I did, I did sort of in the sense tour it, but it wasn't like I had strings of dates, you know, in venues. Yeah. Right, right, right. And so after that then, because I, I, I noticed there was a gap from at least releasing music on Spotify from that EP to there was, I think, a single in 2020. And then, in you know, there's a couple singles. And then you started putting out singles for this record that came out uh, back in April in 2022. So in that time, uh, you made another move and got back in, did did some more acting, right? Yeah, so I had a cool opportunity come my way. I had gotten back to LA um, and there was a production of Spring Awakening that was happening locally through a a theater company called Deaf West. And um, the director actually just reached out to me directly. So I didn't even audition, which is so lucky because I'm I'm notoriously like not a very good auditioner. 
I just get nervous and I don't feel like I have mastered. That's like a skill in and of itself. But um, they wanted, so basically they were doing a version of the show, which if you if you don't know the show, it's this beautiful folk musical um, music by Duncan Sheik, who is, you know, I am barely breathing from the 90s. Right. Um, but, you know, the music is so lovely. It's guitar-based alternate tunings. Like it was super in my wheelhouse. But I had always written off ever being in it because it's a show about teenagers. And in my mid-20s, I was like, well, I guess I'm not ever going to. I didn't feel like I like that role, the main female role was available to me anymore. Um, so it was kind of cool because um, the way that Deaf West works is they cast deaf, deaf and hard of hearing actors. And um, of course, in a musical, you know, you have to have voicing counterparts to sing and speak the lines. So I shared this role with a woman named uh, Sandra Mae Frank, beautiful, beautiful, wonderful actress. And so she used American Sign Language. And then I had to kind of learn the language so that I could speak the lines simultaneously over her signing and then um, sing and play the guitar while she signed. Um, so I sort of shadowed her on stage. So every deaf actor had a voicing counterpart that kind of shadowed and shared their role. Um, so I got asked to be the, they were wanting like musician actors. So people who could play the score in addition to singing and performing and speaking the lines. So it was really a great role for me because it kind of utilized all my skills and it was um, vocally like very much in my wheelhouse. And so um, that took me on like a two year journey because it started in LA in a 99 seat theater production and then transferred to a bigger theater in Beverly Hills and then eventually to Broadway for a limited run um, in 2015 and 2016. Wow, and I actually, I had a high school student a few years ago, what has probably been six or seven years now, I don't know, but um, who did that play with their it, their community theater. It wasn't through the school. And um, so I went to see it. And of course, I had all those. I remember Duncan Sheik from, uh, he did a KBCO Studio C session in Boulder near where I grew up. And he had this song, Cannonball, um, mm. that I just loved. And, and so then was kind of checking out his stuff. And then I was just addicted to the songs because yeah. they're so, so catchy. Um, you know, Song of Purple Summer and it's yeah. it's wonderful. And Mama Who Bore Me and the reprise. And yeah, this music is amazing. It's so catchy and so beautiful. And like, I really grew as a musician during that too, because I was playing like multiple guitars and different tunings. And I really grew like there was really beautiful shapes, like just different ways of playing B minor and G. And yeah, he's got such a cool musical world that he has created and lives inside of. And yeah, it was like so fulfilling musically, just strictly as a musician, like to to play that. Yeah. And it sounds like you were, you're in the building of it, right? I mean, it started in a small theater. And I guess my point by like I saw a student do it. it was like it got big it's been performed many many times in all kinds of theaters so you were in that first were you was that the first production of it yeah so no well you mean of the musical when it when it first came to Broadway yeah ours was the revival so the original production happened like I guess 15 
years ago now, okay. um, maybe longer, uh, with like Leah Michelle and Jonathan Groff and um, you know, those all those people are like really well known actors now. So that was the original production and ours came to Broadway 10 years later, which is a pretty soon for a revival to happen. Um, but because our production was so different, like using what was cool about it is that the show itself is kind of about the breakdown in communication between adults and children and how like oppressive like adults during that time were when it came to like talking about sex and reproduction and like the taboo nature of that conversation and so in our production because the teenagers were all played by deaf 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 actors and we made that true in the reality of the show like this show is now set in a time like in a deaf school with deaf children like that breakdown in communication was so much more amplified and historically you know sign language was really not the primary way that that um like the vehicle for communication there was a lot of like forcing children to try to speak um you know and there was like there was a whole period of time where deafness was like considered like you know you were considered like less than and inferior and dumb and like sign language really like allowed this culture uh, this deaf they call it deaf with a capital d like there's a lot of pride about um like deaf culture and like sign language itself and how that um and how teaching american sign language like allows this community to thrive and i learned so much about that and we incorporated all that into the show um so that allowed for our production to come as a revival like a lot sooner than normal revivals would come like usually revivals span many years like it hasn't been done 50 for 50 years and now it's back on broadway yeah um, ours was only 10 years but um i think fans of the original production became fans of ours because of the unique nature of the show and stuff like that so and did you end up meeting some of the original cast or duncan or anything like that through through the revival yeah Duncan became more involved, like as our show started to gain momentum. And once we got a Broadway producer who was like, I have six months in this theater, I want to bring you to New York. Like he came in and yeah, I think we got like a Gibson sponsorship and he helped us wow. with some of the arrangements. And Steven Sater, who was the lyricist and the book writer was heavily involved. Um, yeah, I mean, on the Broadway level, it's so cool because there's people that it's their entire job to like make sure that the like historical integrity of the show is there that like the costumes like everybody's role is so vital and that's the only way that it can happen because there's just professionals at the top of their game like for every aspect of it just lighting yeah. tech like we had people just handling our guitars and it was so cool like to work in wow. a professional environment like that and so yeah duncan was involved and actually the um Anne maria malazzo who was the original um she like created all the harmonies and like the vocal it's called vocal production um she was involved and she got our cast sounding amazing just with like dynamic singing um and she created all the original vocal arrangements and harmonies and um who else did we have involved um one of the original cast members was in our production krista rodriguez um i think she was the ensemble and she came back to play ilsa in our version which was really cool mm. it was a cool kind of extension of her journey um you know many years later so yeah we definitely had little bits and pieces from the original um kind of infused in our production and we definitely had the original casts 
blessing, you know, to, yeah. to tell their story. That and is so cool. Yeah, that it is. is so cool. And, you know, it's it's quite an accomplishment. I am, I imagine, I don't know the extent of it, but I, I imagine it's just quite an accomplishment to be in a production on Broadway. And, uh, I mean, there's lots, I've heard there's lots and lots of actors and actresses that audition for things and have been in it for years and years and never get to do it. Um, so what a wonderful experience. And also, I don't think in the 120 episodes or so I've ever interviewed someone who's been in a play on Broadway. However, uh, last week there, <laughs> there was, so two in a row. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 No, no. Who's that? I'm so curious. Uh, Jordan Seawick, who, uh, you might know on, on TikTok as Piano Jordan. Okay. Yeah. I feel like I recognize the name. Yeah. Yeah. And so he was, he was in a, in a Broadway play as a kid. Uh, he was a child actor and then, uh, decided he didn't didn't really love it but it was something he did as a kid and and so started doing music instead so but anyway cool. that's <laughs> yeah. so crazy yeah you know i i sometimes hesitate to talk about it when i'm trying to promote like my musical life um thank you my son just brought me a grape oh. um <laughs> because you end up getting like what i've noticed is like publicity really likes to like tack on to that and be like broadway star and i'm like right. That's not really that wasn't what I was doing when I was there yeah. necessarily. And also like people associate Broadway with like really boisterous singing and like a type of performance that's like not really what I'm doing musically, even yeah. though what I did on Broadway was very similar to what I'm doing musically. But it is a part of my story and it was a remarkable experience that I'm really proud of. I think that like artistically it was so fulfilling to be a part of a cast like that. I mean, we really had to, in terms of collaboration, I mean, because half the cast was deaf, there were all of these like subtle cues, like, you know, someone would be standing there and like just tilt their head. And that was the cue for one of the deaf actors to start their thing. Like we had to have all those cues. We had lighting cues on stage and off in order for us to all be in time. So we were like this beautiful, well-oiled machine. I mean, I've never been a part of anything like that. And all the productions that I've done, like this was so special and it is a grueling schedule. It's eight shows a week. You only get one day off and you're performing on Christmas and you get five show weekends. It's brutal. And you don't get to have a lot of fun offstage because you're constantly worried about, you know, keeping your, you know, your instrument healthy and in check. And yeah, so, um, you know, these people that do it show after show after show, I have so much respect for them. It's not definitely not something that I think I would enjoy, but I'm glad that I had the experience of it. And, uh, and the performance part was by far the best, just being in a live room yeah. in this beautiful old theater, um, and the curtain and the whole thing. Like it's such a magical, it's such a magical art form. Yeah. Wow. And so now after this production, is that when you or do you stay in New York for a little while or do you head to Nashville? Yeah. So as as amazing as the experience was, I had a very like intense personal like life experience while I was doing it. Um, my dad, who I mentioned earlier, was like my kind of musical inspiration. The reason I started writing songs, he came to see me in the show and it was amazing. Full circle moment, like so proud. He flew back to Montana and four days later had like a fatal heart attack and passed away, oh. like basically two weeks after the show had opened. And 
I've talked about it a little bit and I sort of like I hem and haw about bringing it up, but it kind of it was totally like a life changing experience for me and and losing my dad was, uh, you know, grief is such a it's such an interesting topic and I feel like I've explored it so much and and it's been a long journey. It'll be eight years this fall. Um, but that definitely changed like the trajectory of my life and it took a long time to get over it. And, um, so I stayed in New York for a little bit, but then eventually I just like, I couldn't be in the city. Like I didn't feel like I had the emotional capacity to like thrive in New York anymore. And I didn't want to audition. I didn't want to continue my career, um, in theater. And so, I moved actually to Kentucky. I moved to Louisville for like a brief four month stint before mm. coming to Nashville. One second. Sorry. No, no worries. For a little interruption. Um, yeah. So that was kind of the, like the beginning of my journey. I didn't want to go back to LA. I'd kind of sold all my stuff. I didn't have a car. So it was kind of like, well, where to next, you know? And so that's when I kind of made the move to, to Nashville. And did you, I mean, were you writing songs right off the bat with people, doing co-writing? What was your place in town? Yeah, it's interesting. So I I moved to Kentucky and I was with my partner at the time and I ended up getting pregnant. And so when I moved to Nashville, I was like maybe three months pregnant. And so I basically moved to Nashville and then had a baby right away. So I didn't get the opportunity to like really dive into the the scene as much as I would have liked. Mm. Um, so it's taken me until recently to like really feel like I've found my place. And a lot has happened since then. Like I had my son, I was basically just like mothering full time and playing private events and stuff like that. I did do some open mics um, and like rounds. I had never really played rounds before. So I kind of got into that, like Belcourt Taps and... Mm. you know, the Commodore or whatever, like I was doing, doing those, um, and writing a bit, um, when I could, but motherhood really like ignited an entirely new, um, relationship to my art yeah, uh, and to my creativity and to my process. Um, that, you know, not my son will be six that I'm, I'm only now barely starting to like find a rhythm with. So, yeah. um, yeah, now I feel pretty steeped, like in the East Nashville scene, I feel like I have friends here and I like collaborate and, you know, I feel like I'm in it and I'm amongst the ilk and really yeah. getting, get a taste for what Nashville is all about. But it took me almost like five years. Yeah. Yeah. Just because. Wow. The timing of my life and stuff right right but any any regrets in moving to nashville or are you loving it no i love nashville so much i like i love it for a lot of reasons i like that i like can have a house here and you know i could never have the space that i have and like a dog and a kid and like you know i i like that i can live that kind of small town life even though this is like a town with so much access to amazing talent and you know you can go out on any given night and see amazing music um mm. i love how easy it is to travel in and out of nashville um and i really like i don't know place has always been hard for me it's been it's been hard for me to find a sense of belonging in like 
any of the cities I've been in. Like I felt like LA, I was always a little bit too, like I wasn't, I wasn't, um, I didn't feel as like showy and flashy as I needed to be in LA or as like the culture, you know, promoted. And then in New York, like I didn't feel fully Broadway either. Like I was kind of at my heart, like I was this like folky girl who, you know, wanted to have proximity to nature and like, you know, just a house where I could sit on a front porch. Like my dream was like front porch fireflies, you know, my guitar. And so I love Nashville because I feel like I can have that aspect and I can easily get anywhere, you know, within two to four hours on a flight within yeah. the States, which I love. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You to Nashville too, right? As well. Yes. Yes. Very new. Yeah. Very How new. are you liking it? Good so far. Good so far. But it's, it's such a change because we've both been in Colorado our whole lives pretty much. And so yeah. it's, uh, yeah, it's, a, and I'm going back and forth a lot playing gigs and stuff and just trying to find my footing. I think we both are, but it's, but we like it so far. It's, it's sweet. Yeah, it's funny. I'm like, I talk about Nashville as being in proximity to nature because compared to New York, it is, but like compared to Colorado, it's like nothing. Like, <laughs> well, Colorado you know, it's so beautiful. There's some beautiful areas here too. I had a gig in, uh, in Chattanooga on Sunday yeah. and I don't know, it was a beautiful drive and but. yeah. No, it is like, and, and not too far. Like there's a lot of beautiful parks and greenways in Nashville. So I feel like it's much easier than like, yeah, New York or LA where it's like, you've got to really try hard to find a place to just be in the trees if that's what you want to be, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, time will tell what our place is and if we love it or. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm not married to Nashville as a forever place, but it is the place that I feel like I was such a bounce around person. Like. I never felt like I stayed long enough. Like sometimes I look at my friends who are still in LA after like they've been there since we all graduated in 2010. And I'm like, dang, like you're now like almost 15 years into like your journey in this city and you're very rooted there. And I'm like, that's so in some ways I'm like, I, I don't know how you've done it. Like I would have gone crazy. And other times I'm like, that's so great. Like that yeah. you have it because every time, you know, every time you leave, like that was the hard part about coming to Nashville. It was like, they you kind of have to start ground zero anytime you move to a new place it's like none of my accomplishments in LA or on Broadway like really mattered here and so mm. I had to make an you know a presence and a name for myself here and they say it's like a 10-year town and I feel like that's true you know like yeah you have to just reintegrate yourself into every new environment and new scene and it takes a while it's like it doesn't happen overnight you know yeah yeah absolutely absolutely well there's there's two more things I wanted to chat with you about. Um, and so you have, you have a new album that came out in April, uh, Calico, and you also have been doing this, or you spent like a year on the road touring uh, Joni Mitchell's Blue. Um, and I know your open tuning experience from from Broadway, and, and it's, it's I mean, Joni does a lot of open tunings, and you've got the Laurel Canyon connection. And your album, uh, I think, has some, some interesting tunings too. Probably, it sounds like it. I don't know for sure, but yeah, um, I, I think those those are two things worth chatting about. Um, the Joni Mitchell came first, right before the new album production started. Yeah, I think that it was like COVID, and I was really feeling stuck creatively, and I had separated from my son's dad, and I. Um, 
was like a single mom and it was a pandemic. And I was like, what am I doing? Like, how do I get myself out of this creative rut? And I'd always wanted to do blue. And I knew, I knew that the 50th anniversary was coming up. I, I kind of clocked that five years prior. And so I always had it in my mind, like in 2021, I want to do this tribute. Um, yeah. And so I just started learning the songs and researching She's got so many great fans who have like really archived her tunings. And um, so, yeah, I I learned the album and then kind of tried my hand at booking my own thing and like finding performing arts centers. And so it started out as like a creative challenge that turned into like a, oh, like maybe this can be a way to be resourceful as a single mother. Like, how can I make music and money? And yeah. what's the what is the performing arts space like and and how how if I build a show, like if I build a tribute show, like what can I charge for that? And like what does it mean to get a guarantee? And yeah. so I started, yeah, I went, I I booked it um at a couple performing arts centers in Boulder, Colorado. I did it in my hometown performing arts center. I did it at various city wineries. And um it's such an ambitious thing. I, like sometimes I do it. Like I just did it here at the Franklin theater. And I'm like, every time I do it, I'm like, why did I do this challenge for myself? Because yeah, multiple tunings, different songs, the dulcimer, the piano, I mean, plus just the content of the music. It's so heavy and like rich and deep. And every time, and I've, you know, I've read all of her biographies and I've really built a show that's like sort of historical and also kind of inter interweaves like my life along with Joni's and um, it's a tribute. I mean, to someone that I super admire musically and um, it's been, it's been a challenge, but something that, you know, now that I've learned it, it's something that I'm able to kind of do ongoing as a supplement to the work that I'm doing on my own. And, and my goal was really to get inspired um, creatively. Like I really wanted to live inside of her, world and her cadences and her progressions and like do a deep dive study of her um and just see how that kind of informed my own my own process and yeah from a business standpoint did you find that it was i mean it, it sounds like a huge job the production the music the booking did you did you find that that you got some value out of that in in bringing it to performing arts centers and things like that yeah, well, during COVID, you know, like there was a big move to try to like find productions that were small, like two or three people, because the more people you have, the more risk. And, you know, for older audiences, too, like which is, you know, a lot of this, the show appeals to that age group. Um, they're retired, you know, they're they love that era. It's nostalgic for them. You know, they wanted to be able to sit at a distance like, you know. And performing arts centers were only booking half capacity sometimes. And so with less people to pay, you know, I can do the show basically as a three piece. I just added bass to it. But for a time, I was just doing it me, percussion and, and a secondary guitar, which is basically what the album was. So it was it was cool to like put on my businesswoman hat and be like, OK, how can I generate like because I had gone back to waiting tables I'd gotten a sales job, but it's like, I really want to play music and however I can do that and continue to grow as an artist. So yeah, it, it was a learning curve for sure, but performing arts centers have great deals and tributes are like, um, you know, 
it's it, it sells tickets like people are familiar with the music and I'm genuinely passionate about this music I'm passionate about keeping kind of the flame of this folk masterwork alive and for younger generations to know the songs too and um so yeah I think it was it's been an ongoing like I said learning curve but um yeah it's been great and I've been able to provide work for some of my musician friends and um and yeah I'm going back up to Wisconsin in October to do it at the Thelma Sadoff Theater up there in Fond du Lac and so you know I I'm like my goal is to maybe do it a few times a year like you know no more than five or six um but it's been cool to kind of also have something that I'm a little removed from that isn't like my, you know, my thing. Um, and, and, you know, bring audiences this thing that I've worked really hard on and I'm really proud of and it's musically fulfilling. So, yeah. Will you release it ever as, as a, uh, uh, Katie Bokes blue? I would love to do that. People have often asked me that, you know, do you have anything recorded? And I would really love to, but I just would want to do it right. And so I would I would want to find like the right arrangers and the right production. And I have thought about just like recording it live and just, you know, I don't have a Patreon, but if I did, that's something that I would maybe offer, you know? Um, yeah. But yeah, probably eventually I that will happen just because I've spent now a couple years of my life like really learning the songs. And actually this last iteration of it, I actually bought like a real dulcimer and learned, you know, three of the four songs on it um, cool. because I, I was using this other kind of like dulcimer-esque thing that wasn't really a dulcimer. Um, but it's taken a new a new level with the with the actual dulcimer. It sounds more authentic. Yeah, that's so cool. You had a big year this year with with your original music, um, you know, with the with a new album out. I think it was April twenty eighth, um, yeah. and then the about a month later, um, you were one of the Kerrville Folk Fest winners, and that's how we met as as co finalists this year. Um, yeah. So really, really cool accomplishments. Looking at the album, is it closer? Did it turn out closer to the sound? in your head uh comparing it to your first ep i think so like i've i've always loved the alternate tunings and the lush arrangements and i like um you know stacking harmonies and it was a really like it was a deep collaboration with my producer you know of the album um it's just funny because you make something and then in making it you evolve i think you just like naturally evolve past it and so now like my interests are like I would really love to make like something with minimal overdubs you know live tracked you know like really simple um but yeah I think like I set out to make something um really rich and sonically like I wanted to create a sonic world and I you know I made a list of albums that I really love before making the record. And I feel like we landed on something, um, like I'm I'm super proud of it. I think it's objectively really good. I think that like, mm. it's a beautiful listen from start to finish. Like it's, it's a world all its own. Um, but I'm my heart, you know, I'm my harshest critic. And so I, I feel like now I have m- new territories and new horizons that I want to explore. And 
I think one thing I'm realizing is like, especially in the folk world, like the process that we had was very like write and record simultaneously. We were Uh. writing together and then we'd go in and record it. And sometimes like the second verse wouldn't be done or we wouldn't have like, we knew what the structure was, but there were still lyrics to be written. And I think I'd like to this next go around, like just really take time to focus on the songs so that they can stand alone, like with a guitar, no, no fancy production behind it. Um, Not that these songs don't, but um, I, yeah, I think that I want to, I want to get out of first person narrative. This album was like really deeply about my own experience with relationships and like having come out of like a divorce and like kind of doing the personal work of like overcoming codependency and, just like, you know, that's been a big theme in my life. And so it was something that I needed to address, I think, for myself. But like, I don't know, I took the song school at Kerrville and I was like, oh, yeah, like I can tell other people's stories, too. And like, yeah, I've been so I think my creativity has been so focused on like my own journey, especially with relationships that I'm like, I feel like I said what I wanted to say there. And um, I'm ready to like explore other methodologies with songwriting yeah like not first person narrative stories stories about other people character studies um yeah and like just different you know just something different um i think i'll always lean into like not just your typical chords like i'm just drawn to that musically i like stuff yeah. that like your ear a little bit differently um and the open tunings really lend themselves to that although i will say like having written an album entirely in open tunings it's such a bitch to play live and so i'd really like yeah. to just write a whole like album of standard tuning or just drop d or something so that like i don't have to constantly tune on stage like there's a practical element to it that i'm like yeah. okay cool good to know that it's not a, as easy you know just to take on the road with one guitar you know, I always have to have two guitars minimum. Right. Right. When what are some of the tunings that you're using? What are some of the more unique tunings on the record? Yeah. So I mean, there's open D and open G. There's Dad Gad, and then I did a lot of like Eid Gad, which is just like you know, just tuning down the bottom or the top two strings. Um, mm-hmm. There's a couple songs in that tuning, which is really cool because it's basically all your standard bass shapes, but you can get more like fun ringing tones on the top. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes just like just like dropping the high E down to a D um, adds like certain colors. Um, I'm trying to think. I think that's it. E gad, dad gad, open D, open G. Yeah. And then just like a high, yeah, high, high D down. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Was there anything in standard tuning on the record? No, not really. There's one song that's like pretty much almost in standard, one or two that is almost in standard, except for that high D. So, I mean, you could technically play them in standard and you wouldn't really notice the difference. Um, one or one or two songs. Yeah. But mostly, mostly everything's in an open tuning. Wow. And I, the, the person that, that produced it, Dustin Ransom, um, you mentioned that you both were kind of freshly divorced getting into the record. Um, did that, how did that affect the collaboration where did you feel like you were kind of on the same wavelength in a way going through a similar life experience? Yeah. And he also has a son who's young. And so we met and I was really looking for someone to kind of like help me get out of like the funk that I was in as a writer. And, um, he was so generous. And, um, I think 
he felt too, like he had things to say, but that like, it wasn't going to, it wasn't going to come out in his own work, like, or in his own style. So I think he was really, um, it was really helpful for him too to like have a vehicle for his feelings and emotions regarding that, um, like over again in particular is a song that I know still carries a lot of weight for the both of us. And, um, yeah, I mean, if I'm going to be completely candid, he and I are, we don't even speak anymore. Um, like it was just this like insane year long collaboration of like writing these songs. And then like, we had a bit of a falling out and, um, it's a, it's a bummer for sure. But I also am like, well, you know, the music exists. And, um, I think sometimes with intense collaborations that can kind of happen, like, and it, it, it was, yeah, I think because of the nature of where we were both in our lives and like all that we had going on and all that we were navigating, like, mm. I'm glad that it all got captured in there. Um, and I, you know, I hope that at some point we can work it out as friends and, you know, work together again. Cause it was a really, um, it was a really special collaborate, you know, collaborative relationship. Um, yeah. But sometimes the more biographies I read, the more I'm like, wow, this is like common. I feel like this happens sometimes, yeah. you know, like it's a bummer, but, um, you know, what we created, I'm really proud of. And, um, yeah, I think the short answer is, yeah, I think for sure. It's interesting Two people come together and it's hard not to separate like where each person is in their life. And that's like the nature of collaboration is like everybody's, imprint is going to be in there. Um, and yeah. in retrospect, I think that I do want to have a little bit more discernment about my collaborators in the future and just like how much I give over and like how much I allow the music to be influenced. And like, it's just every, like I said, every time I make a record, I learn more and more about like my own autonomy and like what I'm like, what I want and I think there's a conversation to be had about like women in the industry and like how we can sometimes like uh, out of our kindness or our need to be like um, appeasing, like, sure, like, let's just do this when actually I have a more clearer vision about what I want. And yeah, um, but it's all, it's all in service to the music and to the process and to the art. And like, I'm glad that I still have, like my best work in front of me um, and that each thing that I've worked on and all of my life experiences are accumulating so that I'm, I'm not like, I haven't peaked yet. I feel like there's still something in me that is going to be even more like reflective of my truth and like my voice as an artist. And like one of the hard things about being versatile, like and kind of between genres is that you can sort of make so many different things and it's a little bit, of a and like vocally i feel like i can do a lot of different things so it's been yeah. a journey like trying to really hone in on what exactly i really do want to say and like what mm. kind of music i want to make and so just whittling it down and getting closer and closer you know with each 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 attempt you know yeah yeah absolutely well this is a, a record to be proud of yeah i i still feel really great about it and and i'm proud of it and i it's one of those, it's really nice as an artist to be able to like turn something on and just be able to relax into your own art and not be like cringy or judgmental about it. You know, like it's a, it's a definitely a snapshot of a really important part of 
and time in my life. And I'm, I'm going to be really happy to have it to reflect on, you know, in future years. So when you're talking about uh, getting rid of the first person narrative uh, a little bit moving forward, is that um, specifically writing in third person or doing a, a Randy Newman in first person, but being somebody completely different? That I'm really interested in. Like, I really love Anna Tivill and um, just writers who do. They sort of like take on, like, take on someone else's story. All of the above. It's something I haven't really explored, um, but I'm learning more and more about it. And um, you know, just understanding like pronoun usage. And I kind of liked the idea of infusing more personal details, but from third person narrative so that there is a little bit of a sense of detachment. One of the things I've noticed and like with the Joni stuff and with my own record is like, it's really vulnerable. Like you think you're in a studio and you're in this like isolated environment, you're sharing your deepest heart, but then you're like out at Kerrville Folk Festival and everyone's having a good grand time and you're on there just like, you know, yeah, sharing your deepest wounds. And it's like, honestly, I don't, always love doing that. I don't, and I don't love that. That's like the only material that I have to share. Like I would love to keep my vulnerability, but like, if there's a way to do it that I can get up in front of an audience and not feel like I'm just bleeding heart on stage, like that would be kind of nice. I would like to have those kinds of songs in my repertoire so that I can just, it doesn't always feel so exposed, you know, um, in a way that's like leaves you feeling you know, there's just a feeling that you have that like you get off stage and you're like, I don't know, am I weird? Is that too, like, was I too emotional? Like, is there, and yeah, I'm just still kind of finding out like how to round out my set so that I just have a little something for everybody. And that I don't leave feeling like I've, I like, I don't have anything left for myself either, you know? And so I think there's a lot that can be done with narrative and perspective in a song to really, protect one's one's um you know just like this the preciousness of your own artistic uh soul yeah that was my conversation with katie boke what a cool story um i'm so glad we got to chat if you like the podcast give it a five-star rating and review Subscribe. There's new episodes every week or two. Um, and again, I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash Andy Sido, S-Y-D-O-W. Um, also, if you enjoyed the interview, make sure uh, you go and check out Katie's, Katie's stuff. Uh, she's done a lot. And the new album, Calico, April 28th of 2023. Um, Best Kind of Love. That's my favorite. But they're all great songs. Go check it out. Um, All right, I'll chat with you next time. Thanks so much.